What is shaking, everybody? Uh, we are back for another episode of the Wind Up Podcast. Now, before we get into this one, this is going to be our Q&A episode to finish out the month of February. I need to apologize. Uh, I was sick last week. Uh, we were supposed to do our live tasting on YouTube. That obviously didn't happen. Being all stuffed up and whatnot does not make for good wine tasting uh, and evaluating and, and talking shop about what we're doing. Also, I would have been coughing and sneezing all over the place. It would have been bad, really, really bad. And after that, it was right into getting ready for bottling and getting our wine club out uh, for this winter. So it's been a crazy 10 days getting all that, getting through being sick and getting all that work done. Uh, normally this would get released on Wednesday, so I'm a couple days late if you're watching it as it's released on uh, Friday, uh, February 24th. Uh, we'll try and maintain that every Wednesday schedule moving forward as long as life doesn't get in the way like it has the last 10 days or so. Uh, but I'm excited. This is going to be a fun one because this is when I get to answer some of the more popular questions that I've received, uh, whether it's through social media or through tastings and hosting guests uh, out at the winery. And I've picked three today that I think are very, very interesting. One in particular has come up regularly, and I'm super, super pumped to get into those. Now, before we do, uh, I should mention, I, or I did mention, uh, our wine club's going out this week. Um, if you are in our club and you're watching this, uh, you will likely have received a notification that everything's all set up and we'll be dropping off your wine to ship out next week. Uh, if for some reason you haven't received that yet, you're going to be hearing from me in basically the next 24 hours. If you're not in our wine club and you want to know how to receive some of our wines, especially the more limited guys, this is our most popular release every year because it's all of our super small production stuff. Things like our Cabernet Franc, our single barrel wines, and our older vintages, our library wines are all coming out this winter. Head to our website, mtgawines.com. There are a couple links up top for the wine club as well as the allocation list. You can sign up for either one of those. Uh, that way you can really dial in what kind of wines you want to be getting throughout the year. So shameless self-promotion aside, let's go ahead and get into your questions from the last couple of weeks. All right, I'm going to save the best for last because it's the one that it's the one that I, I'm so excited to talk about and the first two it's not that the first two aren't good questions it's just that the last one it's something that I don't think we ever talk about when it comes to kind of like the brass tacks of making wine so we're gonna get there uh, the first question that I really want to dive into and this is something that happens regularly when we're out tasting wines at the winery because we're sitting amongst our oak barrels we're talking about our wine production how we go about it and it's why we specifically use French oak versus American oak versus Hungarian versus acacia or whatever the case may be so the reason that any winemaker uses the barrels that they want to use, it's all stylistic. It's it's totally subjective. So the reason I use certain barrels for MTGA is going to be a very different mentality than what someone else is using for their program. Now, you might see the same barrels be used across different winemakers. You know, you have, you know, the, all these barrels are fairly widely available. There are some that are smaller production that you can't find or get a hold of that easily. So there are some that are more limited in production. But the amalgamation of all the different barrels that I use, and I'll use probably 
about six to eight different types of barrels throughout my entire program. They're all French oak, but they're from different producers with different toasting or charring levels on the inside. And that's really how I build my spice rack within the MTGA program. Uh, and I use exclusively French oak because I feel as though it has a very nice, subtle impact on the wine compared to, say, American oak, where the grains are a little wider, there's a little bit more surface area, you get a little bit more intensity from those barrels, they're a little bit more heavy-handed. You have things like uh, Eastern European or like Hungarian oak that is um, going to be kind of the in-between, you know, they're, they're not as tight-grained as maybe the French oak barrels and maybe not as subtle, but they're also not as heavy-handed as the American oak barrels. And I've actually never worked with any uh, Hungarian oak in particular. Uh, so I honestly, I don't have any experience with those personally, but that's the general vibe that I've picked up from colleagues. So that's kind of this nice little in-between, basically. So barrel selection is purely a stylistic thing. And, and on top of that, we can customize these barrels to our liking, and this is something that I'm doing literally right now in February of 2023, is I'm going through and I'm contacting all of my barrel suppliers and saying, hey, here's what we need for this upcoming harvest. Here's what I'm interested in. Let's make sure that we get these on order. That way they're delivered and I'm ready to use them come this fall. So this is the time when people are saying, hey, I need X amount of barrels from these forests, from these producers uh, in this style so that I can make the wines the way I want to make. Uh, this is something that, and this is part of the question that I got was, you know, what, do you keep that kind of like locked up, kind of like a recipe, like you don't want other people to know what barrels you're using and like what proportions? And the answer is no. Uh, we, it's, I could give people the exact, like here's the vineyard I use, here's typically when I pick, here's the barrel, here are the barrels that I use. I could give someone like step-by-step -step instructions on quote unquote how to make my wine and it would be totally different. It's just kind of the reality in the wine industry. It's not like beer where you have, like you have to have your recipe kind of like locked down because it's a little easier. It's not necessarily that's easier. I'm not trying to be a you know jerk about it, but you know, you can, you can replicate beer and turn it out much faster. And if you happen to lock into somebody's like exact recipe and you create a knockoff of, of it, I, it seems like that is much more prevalent or worrisome in the beer industry. At least that's what I've heard. I've never worked in beer, so I don't really know, but that's what people have told me. Uh, that's not the case in wine. We, you know, it takes us a, a six months, a year, two years, or whatever to make our wines. You know, there's so much time and there's so much variability in that length of time that you're never going to make the same wine even if you give somebody like the exact like line it up to knock it down here's how we do things like recipe it's always going to be a little bit different so uh, that was a part of that question too and I guess it's kind of it's it's a great one because I get to talk a lot about you know why we use French oak from these producers what works for our Merlot what works for our Cabernet, what's worked for our Pinot Noir. And that comes with experience over the years. It's like, hey, let's do a trial run on this. Let's talk to some other winemakers and see what they really like. Let's taste wine out of those barrels and see how it's impacting it. And then every once in a while, we have like our R&D project. Like this year, I'm purchasing a couple of new barrels that I've never used before. They're from producers that I know very, very well. And I'm just going to see how they work. You know, it, it's kind of like this is I'm going to spend... A few thousand dollars and which is kind of a tough pill to swallow knowing that it's R&D but it's like hey this could be something that if it works is gonna be really great for our program and I don't want to miss out on that and 
anyway, I have to buy certain new barrels every year anyway, so if I can find some other cool things to kind of work and enhance our overall program, that would be great. So, you know, we did the same thing last, we're doing that with our uh, Pinot Gris this year, our white wine, we're specifically buying a couple of new barrels to see how it impacts our white wine. Uh, last year it was our Cabernet. Uh, we bought different barrels for some of our Cabernet to see how that would work. The year before that, it was our Pinot Noir. So like every year, there's kind of like a different thing that we do to iterate, do some R&D, try different things. And for us, it's always been French oak. That's that's really what we've leaned on in the past. I'm not really interested in using American oak for our program. I've used it for some other programs in the past. Uh, not really my thing, personally, for my own style. But again, it's all just a stylistic consideration, and it just kind of depends on you know what kind of trouble you want to get into. So the barrel selection and how we choose barrels is uh, very personal, I think. It's very subjective to what you're trying to do with that wine, how you want to kind of season it and what you want to add to the overall profile and the complexities that you're trying to draw out of that wine when you finally get ready to bottle it. Yeah. So that's barrel selection. It's just kind of a, you know, let's see what, let's, let's throw it at the wall and see if it sticks. And if it does, awesome. And if it doesn't, all right, we'll blend it out and we'll figure it out from there. So next on the list, and this is actually going to be a much grander topic that I talk about uh, in an upcoming show regarding like wine additives and finding agents and things of that nature. So this is going to be something that ends up becoming its own episode eventually. Um, and I figure that's going to kind of happen. That's why I love doing these Q&As because it is going to be a little bit of inspiration for like, oh, here's here's a great topic that we can cover uh, down the road and really kind of create a, you know, some good content and, and really dive into something in more detail. Uh, but this real, this is a, this, I mean, the, the person that asked this was, they were a little gun shy, which is always so sweet because they didn't want to sound dumb or they or asked the wrong question. But, you know, this came to, down to like how we describe wine, right? Like you, we say, oh, this has great hints of cherries or vanilla or spice or whatever. And they're just, you know, how does that happen? You know, where, where does that come from? And are you adding that to the wine or aren't you or whatever, you know, how, do, how does that come about? Because, you know, the reality is, is that wine doesn't taste like your Welch's grape juice, right? Like you have all these other flavors and things going on. And the reality is, is that the way we describe wine the way we do, excuse me, uh, we describe wine the way we do because it doesn't taste like grapes. So we're trying to describe it in like the best way possible. It's just, what does it remind you of? It doesn't mean that you necessarily added cherries to it to make it taste like cherry. Although it's certainly a possibility in some situations we'll get into that. Um, it's, it's one of those things that just through the volatile process of fermentation and then using these oak barrels, you're, you're going to elicit different flavors and characteristics from these wines it, it you know it, we could get into kind of the geeky like you know chemistry behind this and how these different compounds kind of you know are created or you know are you can elicit them from certain varieties and so on and so forth but the long story short is that it's just through that fermentation process you're going to get a lot of volatility and you're going to get a lot of different compounds that come out of it that remind you of things that just aren't grapes now when it comes to describing a wine, we make it up as we go. Dead serious. Okay? Like, like, if you've ever been in a store and you pick up a bottle of wine, you're reading the back of it, you're like, hints of cherries and blueberries, and they intermingle beautifully with oak, you're like, Jesus, like, this is some, you know, 
this is some intense stuff. It's all bullshit. Here's why. Because, and I've, I've been a part of a larger marketing department that this is what we would do when we bottled up a new wine. And these are wines that were distributed all around the world. We would sit at a big old round table. There'd be about nine or 10 of us. You know, the winemaking team, the marketing team, president of the company, you know, the ownership. And we would all sit down and we would taste through the new wines that are being released. And we'd sit there and we'd talk about them. We'd talk shop. And, it, you know, it'd be like an hour-long meeting. And we'd taste through like three or four wines and really talk, talk about them and dig into them. And we'd write down just, you know, what we thought of them. Flavors and characteristics. And we'd give those all back to our winemaking team. And they would just compile the common threads. If, if, let's say, seven out of ten people tasted vanilla, all right, that's on there. If, you know, six out of ten people picked out cherry, that's on there. You would just, it was just an amalgamation of what a bunch of different people were tasting at that particular point in time. And the reality is, is that if we had tasted that wine the day after or the day before, those tasting notes might have changed. There probably would have been some similarities, but it depends on the day and what you had for breakfast. Um, I know, like, this is what I do, actually, because I'm sipping on some coffee right now. Like, my favorite thing to do before I taste anything is I have black coffee, and then I have a little sip of white wine, typically, like, if I'm going through our wines, our Pinot Gris, and then I start tasting our reds. Because it, almost think of it like the coffee like neutralizes everything. Almost if you've ever shopped for like high end like perfume or whatever. I don't. Maybe they do this in department stores. I know department stores like aren't really a thing anymore. But like if you're shopping for perfume, they'll give you like coffee beans to smell, right? To like neutralize your olfactory senses, and then you go back to smelling the perfumes and decide what fragrance you want. Same thing applies. I just do it with my taste buds. Um, so depending on like what you've had to eat, what you've had to drink, how many wines you've had previously, that's all going to have an effect on what you're tasting and what you're smelling. And we just make it up as we go. Dead serious. We just make it up as we go. A a certain varieties will kind of lean towards certain characteristics. Certain styles will lean towards certain characteristics. So there are kind of like some benchmarks that you can work off of to figure out like what a wine is. Like if you're doing a, like a sommelier-esque, like deductive, like blind tasting, you kind of have that checklist of you know, what's going on in there or what's not going on in there to help figure out what that wine is. But if you're just sipping on a wine to enjoy it, don't worry about the flavors and characteristics. If you taste cherries, more power to you. If you taste vanilla, more power to you. Uh, it, and this, these things are all kind of elicited from the grapes themselves as well as the barrel program specifically. So if you look at like different types of grapes will have certain different flavor characteristics about them. Like Syrah is a great example because it tends to have like this peppery kind of thing going on. Uh, Pinot Noir is another good one because it can be very bright and very fruit forward, but it can also have that like earthiness and that mushroomy kind of characteristic in there. Um, You can look at Merlot as very plush, very fruit driven. You can think about like your berries and cherries and all kinds of things kind of making up uh, Merlot. Uh, You can look at Sauvignon Blanc. You can go all the way to like cat pea or like grapefruit. (laughs) There's a lot. There's a big range to Sauvignon Blanc. Um, You can talk about Riesling and how it kind of smells like uh, we, we say petrol because it sounds fancy, but it kind of smells like gasoline, especially when it gets a little bit older. Um, you know, there's all these different varieties and types of grapes have kind of their own flavors that are, you know, elicited in their wines. And then if you add, you know, an oak barrel or an acacia barrel or something to that, that's going to have an impact 
on that flavor as well. And the barrels are where you get like your vanilla, your chocolates, your mochas and coffees, uh, your butterscotches, your like baking spices and all kinds of other stuff or licorice. Like you get a lot of additional characteristics from the oak aging side of things that are going to, you know, add more flavor and complexity to your wine overall. Now, the caveat, which we mentioned at the very beginning, is that sometimes these things are added in the form of like a concentrate or an extract. This is very, very much, you know, what, you know, kind of manufacturing wine is when you're like, hey, our wine has to have X flavor because that's what we're known for. It's like it's like making Coca-Cola versus Pepsi versus Dr. Pepper versus Mountain Dew or whatever. Like you have a certain flavor that you're known for and you got to hit it because that's what builds consistency and brand loyalty and everything kind of like the broad market especially when wines are you know mass produced you know it's the analogy i think i've used you'll probably hear this multiple times on this show is that it's the reason a big mac tastes like a big mac it's engineered to taste a certain way right and wine is no different you can engineer a wine to taste a certain way you know for small guys you know kind of we lean more on just the raw materials we have grapes we have barrels done what we get is what we get and we're trying to stay within kind of a ballpark but it's all right if it's a little bit closer to left field or maybe a little closer to right field you know one year over another where if you're mass producing a wine and you're fighting for shelf space and you have a clientele that are expecting x you better nail it you got to stick to your guns and you're going to use things to make that happen uh, we're going to get into that and definitely in a little bit more detail in a future episode. That's a huge, huge can of worms to get into. So, you know, in the in the for the sake of like time and everything, we won't get into it in this show. But stay tuned. We are going to get into kind of a, a broad scope conversation of, you know, additives and things that we can that are available to us within the wine industry and how those things are utilized. Um, that's gonna be coming down the pipeline here in a few weeks. So if you are interested in that specifically, never fear, we're gonna be covering that in a lot of detail coming up. All right, question number three. This is gonna be one that I'm a little scared to get into because this is such a huge can of worms, but I think this is super important. Because this is something that, and no joke, in the last week, I have had so many people ask this question. And it's something, and, and they want more detail on it. Because it, I think it's really, really interesting. And there's a gal that I was hosting uh, out at the winery. This would have been probably, at the, from when I'm recording this on the 24th, it was probably about a week ago. About a week ago. And she has a, a specific Chardonnay that she goes to her local, local shop and she buys. She knows it's going to be about 20 bucks a bottle from this producer. And so she's, she's been buying it for months. Like she just found this wine. She's like, this is like the perfect Tuesday night, $20. I can just line it up to knock it down Chardonnay. Awesome. Great. Everyone needs a Tuesday night pizza wine. No harm, no foul there. So she's been buying this wine for months. She goes back. This would have been maybe a month or so ago. She goes to buy the same wine. She sees the label from the producer. She picks up a bottle, puts it in her cart. She goes to check out. And all of a sudden, that bottle of wine is 40 bucks instead of 20 bucks. And she's like, whoa. And she stops and she catches. She's like, oh, hold on a second. Like, that's more than I normally pay for this wine. Is it, like, mislabeled or something like that? Because, you know, typically this is a $20 bottle of wine. And I guess the whoever the checkout person was was like, oh, well, you know, we do 
carry that one. We still carry that one. We're sold out of it at the moment. And that is $20, but this is the Napa Valley version of the Chardonnay and it's $40. It's, you know, it's from Napa and it's more expensive. And she's like, oh, well, okay, but it's still Chardonnay. Like, what's the difference, right? And I and she didn't say where, she didn't recognize or what, didn't remember where the other wine was coming from. I, I, mean, I don't know if it was Sonoma. It might have been, <clears throat> might have been Southern California or just California in general. Who knows? But it was literally half the price. And she was looking down our price list and, you know, our wines, kind of our current releases range right now from 42 bucks a bottle for our white wine up to 105 for our Cabernet. And it reminded her, she's like, listen, like, I understand like your white wine, you know, it's a little maybe easier to make. You're not using as many new barrels, but, and your Cabernet is more expensive, but why is there such a significant jump from one to the next? And I was so thankful that she asked that question because this is something, this is like brass tacks wine production stuff, which we never talk about. We never talk about this. And, and, and few businesses do probably because you don't want too many people to know what, like what your input costs are of doing something. But, you know, when you have something like wine that is still kind of gaining traction, you know, even though it's very popular within the US now, there's still so much, it's still very much like the Wizard of Oz, like there's this guy behind a curtain, you're not really sure what's going on back there. But you know, there's other stuff. You know there's a curtain, you know there's stuff back there, but you just can't see it, right? So I'm gonna try and pull back the curtain on that a little bit here. And this is, the reason I got really excited about this question is because we just got the preliminary uh, grape crush report uh, from the state of California. Uh, so I'm gonna show you this real quick. <clears throat> California preliminary grape crush report. Let me go ahead and move this. Ba, 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 ba. Uh, this is something that we in the industry get uh, after we report on uh, what uh, grapes we crushed, what sugar level they came in at, and how much we paid for them. And that's what we're going to get into right here. So uh, let me scroll down a little bit to make this uh, to the spot where I had saved. Here we go. Perfect, perfect. Um, so, you know, Na this is, you know, Napa as a whole, you know, we, there's a lot of marketing behind it. You know, it's obviously very widely recognized. It's a great wine growing region. We make so little wine in reality. Um, actually, let me look that up. Uh, because the Napa Valley Vintners actually have like a really great set of information uh, that tell us a lot about just Napa Valley uh, as a whole. So here we go. Let me go ahead and minimize this again because this will be actually kind of important. Uh, and this is all found on the Napa Valley Vintner website. Uh, so if you want to fact check me, please have at it. Just go to just Google Napa Valley Vintners. You can find the about Napa Valley section. It'll tell you everything you need to know. So here we are. So Napa, obviously, we don't make that much wine. So right here, just about 4% of California's grape wine harvest. Napa Valley is small in size, yet big in stature. Gotta love the vintners and their marketing. Um, it was first designated to be an AVA in 1981. So we make 4% of California's wine. It's, that's, a, that's a wild number. I mean, we're only, I mean, Napa's 150 square miles on a good day. So realistically, that might not be all that surprising, right? Like we make a very small amount of the overall, you know, production of what Napa has to offer. So, you know, with that in mind, here, we'll go back to the Grape Crush Report here in a minute. 
just supply and demand kicks in. There's so little Napa fruit readily available that prices are gonna go up. There's high demand for it, there's very low supply for it, and prices go up. But is it really gonna be double the price in the case of this Chardonnay that this gal you know, found at the store? Are you gonna go from 20 bucks to 40 bucks a bottle just because it has Napa on the label? And this is what I really wanna get into. And I, I'm gonna equate this to, I'm gonna equate this to uh, Cabernet Sauvignon because that's what we're most known for. Um, I didn't find the Chardonnay section. The problem with this report that I have up is that it's like 160 some odd pages. It's a, and just, it's one giant spreadsheet. So you just gotta like scroll through it until you find what you're looking for. It's a pain in the butt, but I found the Cabernet section. So we're gonna talk Cabernet for a minute here. So, and hopefully this illustrates just kind of the wine grape market in terms of like raw materials that we deal with and how we purchase our fruit. So to give you a little background on that, if you're someone like me and you're purchasing grapes from a farmer, you're paying by the ton. So every 2,000 pounds, you're paying a certain rate, right? Easy enough. Uh, for those that are curious about how much wine that makes, one ton is going to make you about two barrels and change, give or take, right? It's going to be a little more, a little less, depending on the season and what's going on, but call it two barrels just for the sake of easy math, right? Now, the great thing about this report is that it has a section that is, in essence, the weighted average. It is, and not the essence, it is the weighted average for the cost of wine grapes in California, right? So you can see on average in the entire state of California, here's what you're going to be paying for a certain wine grape, which is awesome. You can say, hey, there's how you can kind of compare your area, such as Napa, specifically a very small, very finite area to the state as a whole. It's pretty cool. And that's exactly what we're gonna do. <laughs> uh, and this might be a little shocking to some of you, but I think this is gonna illustrate the point of why that Chardonnay in the store was so much more expensive. Even though we're talking about Cabernet here, you know, this is a very similar situation that we deal with. So I do want to reiterate here, we are only talking about the cost of the fruit. We're not talking about barrels. We're not talking about labor. We're not talking about licensing and permitting and taxes and all the other costs and keeping the lights on. This has nothing to do with any of the other costs of making a wine. This is purely just for grapes as a raw material. Okay. I want to make sure that that's very clear and obvious uh, because this that can be this can be I suppose misconstrued if if someone assumes like oh this is just what it costs and why is that why is it so expensive you know. Um, because you got to input all that other stuff as well, right? So I got to bring up a calculator real quick just for some easy math real fast. Okay, so the weighted average when it comes to California Cabernet Sauvignon, that's from the state of California as a whole. When you average all of California together, the weighted average for one ton, that's 2,000 pounds of Cabernet Sauvignon, is about it's a little over like 1800 bucks it's between 18 and 1900 dollars so less than two thousand dollars a ton so let's call it on the high side let's just call it 1900 divide by 600 because that's going to be your two barrels that's how many 600 is about it's it's a little high but that's how many bottles you're going to get that's about three dollars and 17 cents per bottle that you're spending on fruit just the grapes if you're sourcing from just california on average which that's going to be tough to find like that price specifically, but just for the sake of argument, let's run with it, okay? So you're talking about $3.16 just for the grapes, 
okay? The second you go into Napa, and that's where we're gonna go back to this report right here. I have it highlighted right down here at the bottom because I needed to find it in this giant spreadsheet. If you look at Cabernet Sauvignon, as soon as you move into that Napa County, that makes 4% of California's wine, the price for one ton, the same volume of Cabernet, the price per ton for the same volume of Cabernet is, what's that number? $8,986, right? I mean, you're talking about, so let's call $1,900 divided by, call it $9,000 because you're 14 bucks short realistically. <laughs> like, whoa, you're talking about an immense jump from the like California average and other regions to where Napa is. Cause you have to, you have to assume if it's a weighted average, I mean, Napa's involved in that, in that, you know, 18 to $1,900 price yet, you know, that's the jump that we have here. That's how great prices are skewed in Napa because of how in demand they are, how popular this place is as a wine region and also the overall quality of the grapes that we get here. That cannot be, reiterated enough is that the quality of fruit that we deal with and the, how we farm here in Napa is second to none. It really, really isn't. So, but that's the jump. So you remember that price per bottle, you know, if you're buying, you know, the cheaper fruit from California as a whole, you're looking at $3 and, you know, 17 cents. You take that 9,000, you divide that by that same 600 bottles, you're looking at 15 bucks per bottle just for the grapes just for the grapes, just for the grapes. This doesn't include barrels, this doesn't include labor, doesn't include anything else, licensing, permitting, property tax, whatever else, whatever else you got going on. This is just for the grapes, right? You know what that is? Divided by 3.17, you're talking about 4.7 times the price just for the fruit right? 4.7 times when it comes down to the cost of that bottle. Now, now if you're making high-end Napa wine, you're buying oak barrels, brand new oak barrels that are going to range you 800 to 1200 to 2000 or more a pop. You're going to be aging that wine for three years, two years, three years, whatever the case is. You have the staff, you have someone, you know, I gotta, I have to keep my lights on somehow. So I earn a salary <laughs> for myself. Um, I gotta put food on the table, you know? Uh, we gotta pay rent, we gotta pay for supplies, we gotta, you know, pay for bottling runs and all that other stuff. You gotta pay for labels, glass bottles, corks, foils, everything. And realistically, the way it all shakes down, and you can get away with some of that stuff for pretty cheap, but, if you've ever worked in, then you're like, oh, well, why wouldn't you just price it at a lower price? Well, because I'm not, if you're not making hundreds of thousands or millions, if you're making, you know, if you're making 100,000 cases of wine and you're making $2 per bottle, you know, margin, like that's your margin, it's two, two bucks, then, you know, you're making 200 grand net profit, right? That's overly simplified, but you know, you know what I mean? Where if you're just charging that 15 bucks, you're losing a lot of money, a lot of money. You're going to be out of business before you even get started. So the way it impacts, so the fact that she found a Napa Chardonnay for 40 bucks, that was only twice the price, was actually probably a good deal 
which is kind of wild to think about. It's double the price of that Chardonnay she found in the store that she liked, but that was probably a good deal. It wasn't four times the price. It wasn't three times the price. It was only two times the price. So th that's it's kind of a crazy thing when you talk about just the grapes that we deal with. Nothing else, just the grapes that we're dealing with. You're talking about a huge jump in the overall cost of just raw materials that go into what we do. It is far more expensive in Napa to make wine than most other regions. And Sonoma's not too far behind, uh, but outside of that, it's pretty, I'm not gonna say easier, but it's, it's a little bit more affordable. And Napa Cabernet specifically, is the way I mean three years ago when we got this report the average price for Napa Cabernet was about six thousand eight hundred dollars you're talking uh almost nine thousand now you're talking a twenty two hundred dollar increase in about three years for the same volume of Cabernet so it's it's kind of it's kind of crazy like this is just what we're dealing with as an industry is especially for smaller guys this is the reason why I'm not making Pinot Noir right now because I can't afford to spend money on Pinot Noir when I have a giant grape bill for Cabernet to pay. It's that simple. There are last minute, this is the first time I've said it actually, uh, the first, the, we're not making our Pinot Noir in 2022 and likely not this year in 2023 because I have to take that money and allocate it to Cabernet Sauvignon because that price has gone up so quickly. I can't afford to make Pinot Noir. I had to ax something from the program to be able to afford to buy Cabernet grapes. That's just the reality of it. It's where we're at. It's just where we're at. And the next question she asked was she was very astute. And I, this is a long form answer, which I love this. I love talking about this like business, like dollars and cents, because I think it's something that again, it's behind the curtain. We don't talk about it. But you look at the stark difference in buying the, the California average versus the Napa average like, holy shit, that's why Napa Cabernet is a buck 25 a bottle. You know, that's that's why, because it's so much more expensive to make. I mean, realistically, it, like I did a quick calculation for it. If you're paying kind of a nominal price for bottles, labels, corks, foils, aging, the barrels and everything, realistically, your flat cost, like your your cost for making a bottle of Cabernet, if you're getting a pretty good deal, is going to be probably somewhere in the neighborhood of like 40 to 60 bucks, somewhere in there. But you can't, but that's your cost. You have to sell it with some sort of margin to be able to pay your bills, to pay your employees, to pay yourself. If you're a, you know, self, you're a self, you know, uh, own entrepreneur, I'm completely brain farted on that. If you're self-employed, that's the word I'm looking for. You have to be able to have money in the bank to pay your bills and put food on the table. So you're going to say, okay, well, do you do like the standard retail, like keystone pricing? Do you say, okay, it cost us 40 bucks to make this wine. Let's charge 80 for it. That way, for every bottle we sell, we can make two more, and that's how we scale up, right? Or, you know, the margins are never going to be 50%. They never are. Um, but, you know, do we use that margin as what we use to pay our bills, to pay for bottling, to pay for grapes, to pay for all this other stuff, to pay for the rising cost of grapes over the last few years? And that's where we're at. 
and and realistically actually the margins on like our higher end wines like our cabernet and our red blend are not as good as say our white wine our white wine actually has better margins because it's only aged for six months the grapes are a little bit more affordable because they're white wines the our white wine our pinot gris is how i pay for my bottling runs that money comes in it goes right back out to pay for everything else because that's what it's there for i have a, that wine is built to pay my bills it really really is things like our pinot noir and our napa valley merlot kind of staples with that have been staples in the program are more so hey this is how we pay for harvest like this is these wines kind of the 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 that the, the mid-range like red wines are how we pay for our grapes come the next harvest the reserve wines and limited release stuff our single barrel wines our cabernet franc kind of our higher tier stuff that's my paycheck <laughs> that's how i keep my lights on that's how i pay my mortgage that's how i put food on the table are those higher end wines everything else is just to pay the bills it's wild and i can tell you right now that as much as like grape costs have gone up in recent years and there you have this stark difference between like california as a whole and napa specifically the costs of everything across the board and, and many of you who are probably in like manufacturing industries have seen this with inflation and just supplies and everything our, our costs last year were up 20 to 30 percent uh depending on the uh, the account so everything not just grapes everything got more expensive last year um god this was such a crazy thing to dive in we, we she, this was a it was a really fun group to sit and talk with because they were very business savvy and we got into it and they're like and they flat out asked like how do you survive <laughs> with these rising costs i'm like well our price of our, the price of our wines have gone up slightly to help mitigate it um we're hoping that we can find some cool you know vineyards to work with that don't you know <laughs> don't raise their prices so crazily that is so crazy but you know we, we know price increases are coming again this year and there'll probably be a, a increase in price in the wine and if the wines are still selling then we know the market can bear it and if they aren't there's going to be a correction you know and that's where we go so this was this question man this this threw me for a loop and again this is probably more more information than what most people are willing to share and, and i do want to reiterate you know when you see when you see the price of a bottle of wine on a shelf from napa and it's more expensive than somewhere else say like it's a chardonnay just from a different area this is why it, it's the grape cost we're using more new barrels the, it's higher quality fruit the farming is far more the farming is so expensive out here um it's insane uh, the amount of time and effort and, and, and the deal, it's, it's not that other wine regions aren't trying as hard or spending a lot of money, but if we're going to make world-class wines out here, it's an immense amount of work. It's, it comes at a huge expense. And that's why you see Chardonnay from the same producer, one California, let's say, and one Napa, and there's ones, and the Napa one's double the price. It's just that much more expensive to make wine out here just to buy grapes out here much less everything else that goes into it so for those of you that are huge napa fans we love you dearly because this is it's it's challenging especially for small producers uh to keep up with some of these trends and the fact that some of you are still great supporters and love our wines and and you know enjoy what we do 
it means the world because we can keep doing what we're doing. Um, so that was, oh, that this one, this, this gets me all fired up and so emotional because I, I looked at this report when it first came out a couple of weeks ago and I was like, I don't know how we're going to pay for grapes this year. Like, like we've been around, like we've been, I've been making wine for almost a decade and a half now with MTGA. And this is the, this is the year I haven't felt this in a while. Like for the first few years, like a startup, you're, you're struggling to get by. There's not that there's little or no money in the bank. You're literally making it up as you go. There were, there were moments where I, you know, was, I had a couple of credit cards or I'd transfer a balance to get the lower interest rate. Like we were doing that all the time in the early days. And, and we finally got to a point in like 2016, 17 and into 18 where it's like, okay, like we can actually pay our bills on time. We can start paying down debt. Like this is crazy. And now it's like kind of a bit of a reset again where it's like, oh my God, like here's this amp up in a cost inputs across everything. And we're having to figure some stuff out. We're doing all right. I, I, I don't want to be too Debbie Downer. We're doing all right. But this is this was something that hit very close to home. It was so interesting that I, I think people are kind of waking up to, like, what are just willing to ask the questions, like, what, what is the difference? What makes Napa so special? Why are Napa wines commanding this price point versus a Sonoma wine versus, a, you know, a Paso Robles wine or Temecula wine or San Inez wine or whatever? And this is why it's it's be, and it's it's because the input costs are so expensive for Napa specifically and what we do out here that our wines are naturally going to be a little pricier now, hopefully. And I think many of you do find this is that like the quality does follow suit. There is you'll you see a Napa wine on a shelf. You're like, that's probably pretty good. It's not a crapshoot. You might prefer it, you might not, but it's going to be a good wine. There's not a, there's not a lot of bad Napa wine out there. There just isn't. And you might be paying a little bit more for it, but damn it, it's probably going to be worth it because of how much time and effort and expense went into making that bottle. And that's how it is for us, realistically. It, it, it's We put so much time and effort and money into doing what we do that we only get to keep going because people buy our wine, you know. So this that man again this was this is a rabbit hole to go down. <clears throat> Excuse me. And see there's that head cold I was talking about. It's coming back a little. There we go. This is why I didn't do a podcast last week. <laughs> Um, but I'm very glad I could dive into this. So those were our three uh, questions uh, for our Q&A section this month. I hope you learned a little something uh, just between the subjectivity of barrels and how we go about uh, our business, just flavors and characteristics and how we elicit those. We'll definitely be tackling uh, some of the kind of additives and, and concentrates and uh, finding agents and things that we can use for kind of tweaking our wines in the cellar is something that we really don't do at all but there are a lot of people that do and there are a lot of people that have questions about it so we're going to dive into it and then when it comes to the difference in napa wine and just the price of what makes napa it's not just napa wines a special napa is a special place obviously uh the, the soil the climate everything that's here is outrageously unique and allows us to grow grapes that quite frankly rival anywhere on the planet and there are so few places in the world that are like this i mean there's less than two percent of the world has a mediterranean climate we are one of those places we are in that two percent and on top of that 
four percent of napa you know napa makes four percent of california's wine now extrapolate that to the u.s and the world we are a drop in the bucket and then supply and demand takes over we end up paying a lot for grapes and that translates to you know what you end up paying on the shelf eventually so um this i hope that sheds some light onto things that might have that might be that might be a little more detail uh than is necessary, but I, I am one of those people that figures, you know, I, I'm all about transparency and an informed consumer and a more educated consumer is going to be a better consumer in the long run. So thank you all so much for tuning in. Be sure to hit a like and a subscribe. If you want to have your question be a part of this Q&A at the end of the month, drop it down into the comments or slide into our DMs. Uh, I'm going to try and have at least uh, three questions uh, every episode, uh, three to five, depending on kind of what pacing we're at. We're at about 46 minutes now, which is kind of where uh, where we want to be in terms of timing for these episodes. So uh, we're still very much learning as we're going. We're through the first month, the first few episodes of this podcast. I'm super excited to continue it. Uh, next week, we're going to get into more kind of an educational discussion. Uh, more on that next Wednesday once it's released. So thank you so much for tuning in. We'll see you next week.